Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with our incredible sponsor, Najahi Events. More about them later, but please go check them out. There's lots of great work that they're doing. Today's guest, I just love this guy. I love everything he stands for. I love what he's trying to do, the difference he's trying to make, and I'm absolutely convinced all of you will do too. Josh Littlejohn. Not only Josh Littlejohn, but Josh Littlejohn, M-M-B-E. <laughs> Let me give you a bit of a background. I'm going to read a bio out, okay, but I'll tell you what my thoughts are in a second. When you're passionate about making a difference, nothing can stop you. Our guest today, Josh Littlejohn, shares his vision of how to make a lasting impact on the world. He's a social entrepreneur, a philanthropist, and homeless campaigner who founded Social Bite and the World's Big Sleep Out, which took place in 52 cities around the world. He began working on homelessness issues when he founded Social Buy, a social enterprise with a small chain of cafes in Scotland that began offering jobs and free food to homeless people with a mission to eradicate homelessness in the country. The cafe shot to global fame when George Clooney and Leonardo DiCaprio visited the social enterprise. He's also a founder of Brugouda, a craft beer that donates 100% of its profits to clean water projects, drink beer, give water. I like that, don't you? He was recently given an MBE from the Queen, which he dedicated to the homeless and marginalised. He's also received five honorary doctorates, a Robert Burns Humanitarian Award, and has made the Debrett's list of 500 most influential people in the UK. And he's only 35 years old. What Josh done, I thought was remarkable. I'm not going to give away the story because I want you to hear it. But he has gone out and made a difference. He started really small, almost insignificantly, just by helping one person. And he went on to try and deal with homelessness head on. And he has made an incredible difference to so many people in the world that have struggled so much with various issues in their lives that has led them to living and being on the streets. Let's cue the music, because this guy is one hell of a decent human being, and I love him. Thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region, to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Well, Josh, thanks for coming to join us today on the show. Really nice to have you here. I like a man that's gone out and tried to make a difference, done something different, and not just kind of coasted through life. And I think from your story and what I've learned so far, part of this, this wonderful experience and journey you've been on started a little bit by accident at the beginning, didn't it? It did, Spencer. Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Um, and yeah, you know, that's what's really interesting about it, I suppose, is that it did kind of happen by accident. And um, we've become quite well known in our organisation now for our work in the space of homelessness and, and trying to tackle homelessness here in Scotland and in the UK. But when we first kind of started it, it didn't really have anything to do with the homeless issue. Um, we basically opened this little cafe sort of sandwich coffee shop um, in the city centre of Edinburgh. And we'd been open for literally only about two weeks. And we were in the cafe every morning making sandwiches and serving customers coffees. And there was this young man who was 19 years old. Uh, his name was Pete. Uh, he was homeless. And he was selling the Big Issue magazine on the street corner just outside the front door of the cafe. And after about two weeks, 
he sort of wandered into the cafe this one day and he kind of was lingering lingering around by the counter and he was basically plucking up the courage uh, to ask us if he could have a job. And we kind of thought, oh, why not? It seemed like quite a nice thing to do. So we gave him a job in our kitchen. We basically just saw that he, he was working really hard and we started to see the employment was quite transformative for him in, in his life and his um, sense of self-confidence. And we thought we might try it again when another job opened up. So we asked Pete if he knew anybody else that was homeless. And he suggested his brother, uh, Joe, who was also selling the big issue. And then Joe came on board and he was working hard and another job opened up. And we said, do you know anybody else, guys? And they said, well, there's a guy down the street called John. He might be OK. So we gave John a job. And I think they kind of realized we were basically soft touches um, as employers by this point, And they might have one or two other friends from that situation they could put forward. And that's kind of how it all got started. We started to offer jobs in this cafe to people in a situation of homelessness. And it kind of put us on a path, you know, we probably never expected to be on. It's a lovely start, isn't it? Let's just talk about the big issue for a minute, because there'll be people in this part of the world will be like, what's the big issue? Now, mm -hmm. I, whenever I see somebody, whenever I'm in London, anyone that's selling the big issue i always give them 20 quid i don't know why i do this thing about any because to me if you're a homeless person and you've you've plucked up the courage you've built up your self-esteem enough to stand on a street corner and sell a, a magazine then i kind of like tip my hat to that i respect that and so i always give 20 quid so for the listeners and viewers that don't know what that is it's homeless people obviously all over the world but in the uk there is a magazine that's dedicated um to people and what happens is if you if you're homeless and you sell the big issue i think you get so much a percentage of whatever you sell it for i think it's a quid isn't it or two quid or something and you get some of that but it gives you a bit of a job gives you a bit of a chance to make a bit of cash and, and grow your self-esteem so i think it's a a really great thing to do and um and so, yeah, so I will go see that. And I'm like, right, I'm going to give the guy 20 quid. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, hold on a minute. Do you want your big <laughs> issue? I'm like, no, find somebody else for that. That's for you, mate. Go and go and get uh, yourself something to eat. Yeah. So when you had that guy hanging out, and be honest with me, okay, sure, yeah. when you had the guy hanging on outside the shop selling the big issue, mm -hmm. was your initial reaction when you first saw him, oh, what's he doing there? Or was your initial reaction is good on him? Um, no, I think it was definitely more more on the good on him, you know, side of things. And I think, you know, we did get chatting to him over that first couple of weeks. We maybe give him a coffee at the end of the day, or, um, you know, just say good morning to him, kind of thing. So we were on that kind of relationship. And then when he came in that day and sort of plucked up the courage to, to ask for a job, you know, that's something we hadn't really thought about. And um, it was a big eye opener for us to to see how it just it's something that most of people in the world take for granted is having a job and. All that gives you not just the regular pay packet, but the sense of purpose and meeting colleagues and all the different things that employment gives someone. And just to see what a pivotal thing that could be for someone who's really on the margins of society to, to trans transform their life was a big eye opener and a big became a big motivating factor. But, yeah, I think the big issue is a you know, brilliant thing. And I think it's no coincidence that the first four or five people that we took on from a homeless background were all big issue sellers because they'd kind of taken that first step and they were already you know, showing that degree of self-motivation to be out there um, in, the, in the cold Scottish winter uh, selling that magazine every day. So they were, mm. you know, that was a good indication that they were all motivated to try and hold down employment. Hmm, it's a good point, isn't it? Again, remembering about the weather. So how does somebody or how did these guys behave differently at work? What was their attitude like? Because we've heard a lot over the last few years, you know, people are getting paid more money, people are or the employees are making the demands rather than employers. And there's a there's a bit of a backlash at the moment and some attitude problems. I don't want to work five days a week and you know, a lot of this kind of negative stuff. But if you compare them to your employees that came in one way versus the guys that came in from the big issue, did they 
put extra hours in, extra effort in? Were they extra positive? Were they what was it that was different? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a good question, and I think that um, you know, particularly at this time with labour market shortages, and you know, a lot of industries like the hospitality industry and a lot of industries with entry level jobs really struggling to fill their labour requirements. Then there is this big cohort of people that are traditionally very excluded from the labour market that if they're given an opportunity we've certainly experienced that they can really thrive and come into their own and become real assets to you as, as an employer so if you take Pete for an example um, I, I remember that when he first got the job we, we gave him a job for 16 hours a week a part-time job but because he was so motivated to try and make it work he wanted to work for the 16 hours and he wanted to volunteer for another 16 hours you know so when a full-time job came up it was just the obvious decision to do to offer that to Pete so I do think you know if, if you can open up your your employment doors to people that are otherwise excluded you can get highly motivated people in ent- entry-level jobs on the flip side it also comes with a lot of challenges you know as we learned you know when we started to do it people have maybe never had a job in their lives so it might take a bit of time for them to get used to the routine of it um, to get used to some of the kind of emotional stability required to, to hold it down. And what we kind of learned when we sort of changed the model to more of a social enterprise charity with a, a real focus on, on the homeless issue, that it was important for us to provide some support alongside the employment. I think when we first started doing it, we were quite naive and just kind of like, you know, get in the kitchen and start shopping the tomatoes kind of idea. But um, you know, after some time, you kind of realise people might need a bit of emotional support or other maybe practical things like, for example, they do, they might not have a bank account open, um, so how do you pay their wages, or they might not have a fixed address, um, and they might have all other kind of practical challenges in their life. Um, so we kind of learned that a support alongside the employment was the kind of key to making that work. What does society get wrong? You know, we see predominantly we see kind of televised in America, in California. You know how there's these huge amounts of homeless people, and you know I've, I've been to the states a few times, and it seems to me that places like Santa Monica seem to be the end of the you know with well, the seas there. After then, there's you know there's nothing but the seas, so they kind of stop there. The weather's relatively good, but now there's a huge amount of people homeless in Los Angeles and in San Francisco. Mm. What what do we do wrong? What is it that we get wrong as a society? What, what, because no. You know, I believe that most people are kind. I believe that mm. most people are, are, are good. Most people aren't arseholes. You know, m- most people have, have generally have got good social ethics. So what is it that we get wrong as society that allows these people to not just slip through the net? Because I know challenges people mm. experience. But why aren't we picking them up? What do we do wrong? Yeah, that's another great question, Spencer, I think. And I, and I I staged a big uh, fundraising campaign in 2019 called The World's Big Sleepout, and that required me to do a bit of traveling. And I went to the US quite a lot over the course of 2019 and spent time in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. And I was absolutely just dumbfounded by the level of homelessness, particularly in LA and San Francisco. In San Francisco, it sort of felt like it was the end, the end times. It was kind of almost an Armageddon-like scenario where block after block where you're walking past the most illustrious skyscrapers feet you know hosting the world's most powerful and wealthy technology companies and there's a higher concentration of billionaires in san francisco than anywhere else in the world and you're walking block after block and there's just hundreds of quite clearly mentally ill um homeless people um and it was just unbelievable and i went for a jog i remember uh, along the san francisco uh, the golden gate bridge Mm -hmm. and um 
you know, there was big uh, fences up along it. And I kind of thought, I wonder if that is to stop people jumping because there must be a lot of, you know, that kind of thing. And as I was jogging back across the bridge, lo and behold, there was somebody clambered over to, uh, trying to jump and two police officers were hauling him down. And it just felt like this is kind of society's creaking here. And I think, you know, in terms of what we got wrong, I think capitalism has brought so much um, progress, so much wealth, so much uh, good things, um, but I think unbridled and without a safety net. And I think particularly in America, the sort of capitalist ideology is so turbocharged that, you know, the American dream is anyone can be president and, you know, you can go and do anything. But the sort of counterpoint of that is, is it's your fault if you, you know, end up slipping through the cracks and it's your responsibility to sort of bootstrap your way up. And I think that can uh, lead to a society without a sense of safety net. And I think sometimes, you know, on a macro level, people in society, we're, we're so focused on success and progress and innovation that I think sometimes we forget to, that we can apply our creative um, energy towards trying to address some of these social challenges we face and, and trying to help people not slip through the cracks. So, um, you know, maybe something to do with those factors. But, but isn't it fair to almost argue that you can do the right thing and you can still be really profitable too. I mean, there are great examples out there of companies that, I don't know, Adidas uh, Parlay trainers are made from recycled plastic from the ocean. Um, there's a Veja, the Brazilian brand. There, there was Tom's, the, the shoe brand, mm. that gave one pair of shoes for every pair they made. They gave one to charity. And they went on to be roaring successes because their yeah. approach was, yeah, we're in business to make money, but guess what? We're in business and, and if we're going to make money, why can't we share it and help too? And it yeah. gets... It gets because I believe every because I believe most people are good. My feeling is people support that, and that's been demonstrated mm -hmm. in you know their balance sheets and profit and loss and whatnot. So, yeah. what, what you're right, it's like it really resonates with me what you just said. It's mm -hmm. like, yes, you pursue the America dream, so you're responsible for going out there and making it happen. You're the person mm -hmm. that's responsible to create the life that you and your family want. And if you fail, then you must solve the problem. But not everybody's equal, even though we might no. have hands, hands and arms and legs that are the same and two ears and eyes and stuff. <coughs> not everyone's equal. People face challenges mm. that have sometimes not been brought about by themselves because yeah. of the environment they grew up in. There's lots of you know, there's kids that grew up in foster homes. There's 500,000 yeah. kids go missing every year in the States. 75% mm -hmm. of them are from the foster care system. So yeah. that's not it. That's all of a sudden not equal, is it? Because my 100%. kids didn't go through that. Definitely. I think, you know, that, that's when we first set up Social Bite and I started to meet people from a homeless background. That was the biggest thing that kind of whacked me across the face, really, was understanding the contrast between my own background and the cards I was dealt, which were extremely privileged, really. Um, you know, really loving family, lots of opportunities and financial support and other kinds of support throughout my childhood and my life. And when I started to meet these guys one after one that were offering jobs to them, we started opening up the cafes to offer free food. So I started to meet maybe 40 or 50 people every day, you know, who were homeless. And, you know, where possible, I might just get chatting to them and say, what's your story? How did you how did you become homeless? And you kind of expect maybe, you know, there's going to be a range of stories and maybe people might have made some bad decisions and got addicted to drink or drugs or whatever the, the stereotype might be. But time after time after time, the story just kept repeating 
well, you know, I suffered a really traumatic abuse when I was a kid. I got taken into the care system. The care system really failed me. I became homeless when I was in my late teenage years. And you kind of kept hearing the same story on repeat. And it became really apparent that this is not something born out of individual decision making. It's totally systemic. Um, and I think, you know, we can sometimes get caught up particularly if we've achieved some success, you know, in this, the kind of idea of being a self-made man. And I've maybe uh, felt that over the years myself, but you kind of realize when you hear these stories, there's not really such a thing as a self-made man because we're all ultimately in a lot of ways shaped, you know, by the cars we were dealt, particularly when we were younger. Um, and, you know, and there's a lot of people that, that suffered such uh, traumatic situations and, and got dealt such terrible cars that they simply don't have the same toolkits you know going into the world so i do think it's it's incumbent on society you know obviously from a government level but also for us as individuals to think you know how can we apply our work particularly driven entrepreneur this is my big passion now people i love and connect most with in terms of friends and people in business is entrepreneurs you know entrepreneurs are a bit of a different species i think from a, a lot of other people and um, I, you know, I love an, on, an entrepreneurial mindset, you know, and I think entrepreneurs have so much power in our hands to bring a vision to life and manifest an idea into reality. So I think that to me, what's inspiring in some of the social enterprise things that inspired me in the first place is how you can apply that entrepreneurial cre creativity towards different social challenges that we face. And I think that's an exciting um, thing as well as, you know, it's important that the government provide a safety net as well. Mm. Okay, let's come on to, I want to go into a bit more into that in a minute. Okay, this is what's, what I find quite interesting. You talk about entrepreneurs. A lot of entrepreneurs became successful because there was some form of trauma in their life that they responded to. And, you know, you can take a fairly common one, bullying. Okay, mm -hmm. they were bullied and they then they had a point to prove and that's where <clears throat> something happened chemically in their brains to switch on this kind of like, go, 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 prove the world that I'm mm. not a failure. The work that I do with um, a children, so I work with a group of children from Bangladesh at the age of thir 12, 13 years old, they get married off, they're born in the slums. So I work with these kids. I also work with some kids in uh, a community in Nepal called the Badi community at the age of nine years old, they will become prostitutes. And so I've firsthand experience of this kind of stuff. When I help, the feeling I get as a human is the best feeling I ever, ever get. Mm -hmm. There's nothing I do in business that comes remotely close to how that makes me feel. Yeah. So, and it's very, you know, it's, it's actually very selfish. That feeling feeds me. It's very selfish. Mm -hmm. It feeds me, it makes me feel fantastic. If everybody got a chance to have that feeling, I'm pretty sure that the world would be a different place because yeah. they get the feeling of doing a deal. They get the feeling of, you know, succeeding in some commercial capacity in their job, getting a promotion, you know, getting mm. a pay rise, whatever it may mm. be, you know, their kid passing some exam or, you know, doing scoring a goal in football or whatever. We all get that, those positive emotions. But when you give to people that are less fortunate than yourselves or people mm. that are in more troubled situation than yourselves, yes, of course they get a massive reward then, but you get a really big payoff because of that. And I think we can we yeah. do more of that, teaching people to mm. experience that because the moment you, because they only need to experience it once. Mm -hmm. And that's almost like a, that's a version of heroin on its own. That's an addictive yeah. drug. hundred percent. No, I think it's a, 
a great point. Um, you know, and the the person that inspired me in the early days of Social Bite um, was a guy called Professor Muhammad Yunus, um, who's who's based in Bangladesh, actually, and he's an amazing guy. guy won the Nobel Peace Prize, um, and he started this thing called the Grameen Grameen Bank, um, where they started to lend money to poor rural women. It was like a bank for women who couldn't read, couldn't write, never had access to finance before. And he went on to set up over 50 different businesses in Bangladesh, uh, 50 different companies, some of them joint ventures. And some of them went on to become like billion dollar companies. He set up the phone network there and stuff. Um, but he basically, and I was reading this guy's book back over 10 years ago, and he never owned a single share in any business that he ever created. So every time that he wanted to set up a business. It was because he kept seeing these social challenges in Bangladesh. It's obviously a very poor country. And his solution every time was never to set up more of a traditional charity format. It was to set up a business format to tackle this particular issue. So I was reading this thinking, wow, you know, that, that's quite interesting. And what he describes it, he says that in business and making money, you know, that undoubtedly is a, creates a form of happiness. But creating something that helps others, he calls it a super happiness. You know, and I, I would you relate to that and, and exactly what you said i think you can get derive such a sense of joy and happiness from that um but i think the a big issue you know as far as i can see is that we live in a society that where we're saturated with a definition of success that you know is a materialistic one you know and everybody wants to be successful and we're kind of we come out of education we're plugged into this game of success equals you know financial wealth and materialistic possessions and because you want to try and win the game and be successful that's naturally you know the the, the path that you're you're funneled down and so I, I think that culturally as a society in the west um we don't make enough of the happiness that can be derived from helping others and i think if we did and we change some of those cultural dynamics we'd solve a lot more social challenges because people would be waking up, getting out of bed every day and turning their brains on to these things. And um, I think that would, you know, ultimately when you extrapolate that out, make a big, big difference. Can I imagine if the American dream was to leave the world helping more people than you could have ever hoped to. Exactly. Let's imagine if that, that was, you know, your epitaph, that was your, the eulogy at your funeral is that this person is the most successful person I know because they helped over their lifetime, 2,132 exactly. people. You know? Yeah, 100%. The world would be, we wouldn't have any social challenges left. We wouldn't have things like poverty and homelessness. We wouldn't because yeah. everyone would just be switched on to it. I think that for me, that is just everyone, you know, and I've, I studied economics at university and I literally got taught that the role of a business is to one dimensionally maximize profit. And that's the mission of an entrepreneur. And they teach you that academically. You switch on the TV and you watch Dragon's Den or The Apprentice and, you know, you go on Instagram and you see, you know, the influencers and the materialism and all the rest of it. And that's just what you get told is what success is. And I think, um, yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a kind of, uh, game you can never win. I read something that um, they did a survey of multi-millionaires and billionaires, and they were all asked on a scale of one to ten. They're quite a lot broad wealth, you know, spectrum, but they're all multi-millionaires up to sort of billionaires. And uh, they're asking a scale of one to ten how happy they were. You know, I think the average was like six out of ten. And then it was kind of like, how much more money would you would you want to become? You know go up the scale in happiness and every single person regardless if they were worth 
10 million or 100 million. They all wanted an additional 50%, you know, of their wealth. And I think like it's a never ending um, thing. Once you achieve a certain level, there's always somebody richer. There's always, you know, another kind of economic level to hit. So I I do think that culturally, um, you know, it it would be good to to spread an awareness of um, the happiness derived from, from these other areas. Mm, interesting what you say you go to monaco for a weekend because you'll never be the richest man in monaco ever yeah. that's a great <laughs> good, good place to go to for a real leveler um yeah. then people say to me who's the most successful person i know and the most successful person i know her name is maria Sal, which my audience and listeners know very well she saved 682 children from the slums of dakar educated them internationally um and just done remarkable work and to me she's the she's like the you know, the big mm-hmm. Don, you know, the mm-hmm. most successful person I know. And I look at her, she inspires the living daylights out of me. I'm yeah. humbled when I'm around her, yet she's such a humble lady. So I really, what you're saying really resonates with me. Okay, so let's let's jump back into the story again. You've got these guys, they've come to work for you. You've, you've essentially helped these people build their confidence. You've got their self-esteem up. They started to feel some passion. But hey, that's little old you with your coffee shop. What happened next? Um, yeah, so... We then just started to introduce this pay it forward system in the in the cafe, and we started to encourage customers to uh, buy something extra when when they were in the shop. And um, so we said maybe you might want to buy an extra coffee or a sandwich, and customers started to say, okay, bought something extra, and we started to invite homeless people in uh, to get something for free. So again, almost before we realised it, we were feeding maybe forty or fifty people every day in this little cafe. And then that kind of became the cemented ethos of Social Bite. And we decided we would make a policy that one in four of the workforce would be people from homeless backgrounds and we'd run this pay it forward system to to distribute food through the cafes. And we started to expand the cafes. We thought we'd open a little chain um, in Scotland. Um, Thought we might try and kind of give Starbucks a bit of a run for their money here and uh, open five cafes, um, two in Edinburgh, two in Glasgow, one in Aberdeen. Um, and, you know, by this stage, um, we're getting towards maybe sp- going for about three years. It started in 2012, it was about 2015. We were giving out quite a large quantity of food throughout this network of cafes and offering lots of jobs to people. But pretty much no one would have ever really heard of us or known you know, anything about what we did really out with the immediate localities of the shops. Um, but we got a bit of a crazy profile boost in um, 2015. When I somewhat speculatively, I decided to write a letter to George Clooney, as crazy as that sounds, um, and invited George Clooney to come to Edinburgh and visit our little cafe. And yeah, amazingly, in November 2015, you know, he did rock up and brought the whole of the city of Edinburgh to a bit of a screeching halt, uh, as you can imagine. And suddenly I went into the, the news agent the next day and our little cafe was on the front page of every single national newspaper in the whole of the United Kingdom. It was a news item on the BBC News at six. It was like, uh, went out internationally. I have cousins that live in South Africa that were following me up saying, I've just seen you on Sky News with uh, George Clooney. So suddenly, you know, as a tiny little social enterprise, we had a big profile and we thought we might try and capitalise on that to develop much more ambitious fundraising activity and much more ambitious kind of programs and projects and ultimately try and have a bit of a voice politically as well and and starting to kind of campaign on the issue that we were beginning to learn a bit more about so yeah that was a bit of a a big leap for us Mm, can imagine what was 
when that happened and you got that attention, did it did, did did it excite you, intimidate you? Were you just thinking, hold on a minute, I've got to level up here and start to do something much bigger? What did you feel in that, in that moment? Um, it was just good fun, to be honest. It was just like really, sur- <laughs> you know, it was just sur- it was just surreal. It, you know, like I say, for me, the thing that gets me out of bed is this is and and as an entrepreneur, it's like building your muscles kind of thing if you go to the gym every day you know if you every day try and bring an idea into reality then you get a bit more ambitious the next idea and so on and so forth so at one point it was an idea in my head to think I wonder if we could bring George Clooney over and get him in our cafe and then fast forward a period of time and that idea becomes a reality and you've got 200 you know newspaper paparazzi and news trucks and 200 women were camping out since six in the morning to catch a glimpse and I'm stood in this little cafe that we'd only opened a few years prior you think wow this is amazing that you can actually this came true <laughs> um you know so it was good fun and then basically we thought we'd see if, if lightning could strike twice and we the following year we wrote to Leonardo DiCaprio again as mad as it sounds and we ended up managing to get him over um, and he had lunch in our restaurant and stuff so between 2015 and 2016, we had these two big profile boosts. And as I say, it was great fun, but it did give us a tremendous opportunity to, to level, up, level up our ambition in terms of the work we were doing. And from there, um, yeah, we, we, we went into some really ambitious fundraising activities and th- thought through how we could invest that money raised into more ambitious housing-based projects around the homeless issue as well. Well... Did you have a goal or was it just, was the word more or better just attached to everything? No, I suppose the horizon was always maybe a year at a time. There was never a big goal, but it was always, you know, one phase after the next. And sometimes that just took different turns along the way. So, you know, I suppose initially it was, let's try and open a cafe. And then we kind of, once we had the the ethos of what we're doing, it's okay, let's try and open a little chain and then, um, you know, as we learned a bit more about it, um, you know, we thought we'd we'd try and maybe develop some other areas. So I think the the big leap after um, the the George Clooney and Leonardo DiCaprio visits is we thought we'd try and pull together this big fundraising um, campaign, which lo- which launched in two thousand and seventeen, which we called Sleep in the Park. And the idea behind it was that we would take a, the city centre park in Edinburgh. Um, on a very cold December winter's night and we would try and invite people from all walks of life to come and sleep out basically and just get that little glimpse into what it might be like for homeless people that have to do that every night and you know we thought we could try and you know write off to lots of people to make this a big mass participation thing so we wrote off to employers and asked for big teams to come we went to high schools and universities and churches and mosques and we said, look, for this one night, we want to invite you to come and sleep out in Princess Street Gardens. And we're going to give you all a fundraising page um, to, to, to try and raise some money as well. And we ended up managing to get 8,000 people um, came and slept wow. out yeah, <laughs> on this night. And we gave them all a fundraising page and they collectively raised four million pounds, um, which was just totally bonkers. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. wow. That must have blown your mind. Yeah, no, it was absolutely crazy. And, you know, as, as fate, you know, would have had it or the gods would have had it, the particular night that we organised this turned out to be the coldest night of the whole year in Scotland. 
um, temperatures dropped to minus 7 degrees Celsius and everyone literally woke up with frost covering their sleeping bags. And, um, you know, everybody, including myself, went out, went away with a totally changed perspective into the what an awful reality it is to do that every night. Um, but, yeah, you know, that gave us a big pot of cash to, to think about how we can start to to um, invest in some much more ambitious projects. And that ultimately led us to fund a couple of uh, housing-based projects. So the first one was something called the Social Bite Village, um, where we took on some vacant land that was owned by Edinburgh Council. And we basically put into production these two-bedroom prefabricated wooden houses uh, with a big community hub. And it's basically a little community um, village for people that are homeless at 20 people at one time to come and live. Um, they live there for maybe around a year, 18 months, find their feet and then get helped onto a mainstream flat. So um, that's been a really successful project that we're, we're looking to try and replicate now in some other cities uh, that was made possible um, through the sleep out. So kind of just take it, kind of kept taking it one step at a time. And um, as I say, similar to probably anyone with an entrepreneurial kind of mindset, you're always thinking what's the next thing so I'm sure that'll always be the way we go just keep, always try and keep pushing ourselves onto the next thing but um, just have that real strong focus in, in this area. How many how many people have you helped or impacted do you think along the way any idea? I mean, on the So we launched two housing based projects after the sleep outs um, and we ran the sleep out basically from 2017 for three years through to 2019. And on the 2019 one, it was this big international one that we called the world's big sleep out. In terms of the money we raised locally through the Scottish events, we invested them one in the village. So that's helped around 70 people um, off the street. And another one in this uh, big nationwide project called Housing First. The idea behind Housing First is, is that traditionally in trying to tackle homelessness, that we tend to make the intervention of actually giving someone a house the last thing that you do that's the way we traditionally do things so if someone's on the streets typically as a society we say to them look you're going to need to prove yourself that you can be on top of your mental health issues and you're on top of your addiction issues and you can pay and hold down your rent and maybe you can get a job and if you can prove all these you can clear these hurdles then we'll give you a house at the end but if someone's living on the street, then it's pretty obvious, it's just common sense really that their mental health is going to be deteriorating, you know, and they're going to, their addiction issues are getting worse and they're going to be further removed from the employment market and living in a more chaotic kind of space. So you've got this kind of broken system where you're asking people to show themselves to be up here whilst making them live in this hellish environment that's sending them down there. So what Housing First suggests is that what we should do is make, giving people house the first point of intervention and then wrap around the support that they need to get on top of these challenges in their life from a secure place to, that they've got as a home. So we launched a big project um, basically getting rough sleepers into mainstream flats. So that piloted across five cities and helped about, I think, six in the region of 600 people into their own flats. And now it's been rolled out as policy in Scotland and it's helped, I think, about 1,200 people. Um, so that's probably our biggest achievement, I think, between that and the village, you know, helping well over a thousand people directly off the streets into housing. Obviously, through the the food provision and the employment, you know, the, 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 there's additional people that help in those ways as well. So, you know, really, it's such a it's a big team effort, and you know, I maybe helped to catalyze the whole thing. But it's really thrilling to have so many amazing people 
um, work with me that kind of bring a lot of this stuff to life. So it's been really uh, rewarding. Okay, let's go. Can you do me a favor and give me some stats? It'd be good to get some stats so people can understand. So how many, and again, if you don't know the answers, that's fine. Mm -hmm. How many homeless people are there in Scotland or the UK most of the time? Um, in, in Scotland, uh, there's, I think, around 30,000 people on the in a situation of homelessness. Maybe around 5,000 of those people over the course of a year will sleep rough. Um, in the UK, I believe there's around 200,000, quarter of a million people, um, you know, in a situation of homelessness. Um, and I don't know, maybe 20,000 rough sleepers or so or more probably over the course of a year. So it's, you know, undoubtedly a big issue here and certainly even bigger than the US and many other Western cities, uh, big cities as well. Can the problem be solved with money or have we got to change the way that society thinks and operates much like you said early on about you know entrepreneurs and the american dream have we got to change that first or is the solution money i think the solutions i think around implement it's ultimately about policy to you know to some extent but that doesn't mean that you know you can just discharge the whole responsibility of it to the government you know i think what we were able to demonstrate with the housing first project is we got went out ahead of it created this project raised money privately set the whole thing up and from that position lobbied the government to adopt it as as policy and i think that's a good model for you know a social entrepreneur to look at is how they can they, they can actually do the legwork and set up a project and then use that as a, a test case you know, to enable policy change. And I think, okay, go on. Had, do you know how many Ukrainians came across from, to, from Ukraine to the UK? To be honest, I'm not sure, to be honest. So this, um, this is what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. And this is just psychology, mindset, whatever you want to call it. The, the government says we need to help Ukraine. Mm -hmm. There's people in trouble. Okay, we're going to bring them to the UK. I want you to stand up, put your hand up. If you can take a family in or a person in, give them food and shelter mm -hmm. after what they've been through. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we had a large, uh, a, a percentage of society that went, we need to help. We can do yeah. something. Okay, let's bring that family. You know, what is it? Wife, husband, wife, two kids. Great. No problem at all. They can come with yeah. us. Both my, both, but both my parents have done that. My parents are divorced, and just the last couple of months, they've just got uh, my mum's got a mother and daughter, and my dad's got a mother and two kids. And so, yeah, I've, you okay, know, so seen that's that, remarkable. Yeah. But let's let's just understand that for a minute. That's yeah. our government reaching out to the people of the country, saying, "Look, we need your help, guys. These people mm. are struggling. Their their backs are against yeah. the walls. There's a bloody war going on, and they're homeless." Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how about if the government went, "Guys, we need your help." There's mm. 20,000 people in this country that are sleeping homeless. Some of them yeah. are in your towns, your villages, your cities. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. we need to help these people. Yeah. Could, if you took them in, okay, if everyone took them in for 30 days, mm -hmm. just 30 days. Yeah. A warm meal, clean clothes, um, um, a shower every day, and just those conversations that they would be having with those people 
would lead to two benefits. Number one, the conversations would educate maybe the homeless person on some ideas they hadn't thought about before to give mm -hmm. them some, some direction or maybe the network of that individual that's hosting the homeless person they could lean into as well. The homeless person gets an opportunity to make that family feel amazing for doing something good. Mm -hmm. Going back to the point I was making earlier yeah, about yeah. what it feels to do something good for people. Mm -hmm. You know, my, one side of my family are, are deeply religious on my dad's side. Mm -hmm. And my grandparents were missionaries in the Second World War. My, my, my dad and my, his two sisters were born in West Africa, uh, while my grandparents were doctors in, this, in Nigeria. All of my family put money together, collect things, and take a truck every two months and drive it to Romania. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're in their 70s, my auntie and uncles and stuff, to try and help these people that are suffering in Romania. What... We seem to be able to help when it seems to be a subject that that we find palatable almost. Mm, so mm -hmm. what's not palatable about what's on your doorstep that yeah. that means we don't help? I, I, I've struggled to try and understand yeah. it. Could you share some light for me? Um, it's an interesting question. It's something I've thought about as well. Obviously, you know, with my own family taking in um, people from Ukraine and, and seeing and what a tremendous difference that's, that makes for those people. But undoubtedly... There is this this sense of um, urgency, you know, that, that so many families across the United Kingdom have opened their their family doors indefinitely sometimes, you know, to people from that situation. And, you know, I think it's a really, really good point. You know, we could probably make a, a big, big, big difference to the situation of homelessness if there was a similar kind of drive and a similar kind of motivation from people um, you know, to, to, to open their doors to people that find themselves homeless. I think what's the difference? Why hasn't that happened or, or why is maybe that unlikely to happen? I think probably you get, uh, unfortunately, because it's, the issue has become so prevalent, you know, in the UK and other big Western countries for so long, we've become desensitized to it. We sort of take it for granted almost as though it's a fact of life now. You know, you walk to work and you sort of, almost have to step over someone in an alleyway uh, on your way to work in a lot of the big cities in the UK. You just have become desensitized to it. You know, whereas with the war in Ukraine, it's obviously something that, you know, was in over everyone's news channels and people felt a real sense of altruism to, to uh, you know, to help. And there's a, there is a program run by a charity called DePaul uh, called Night Stop, um, which, you know, is exactly that premise where they encourage uh, host families to kind of open up a room in their house and you know it's just a short-term thing where maybe if someone a young person who's been kicked out of their family home or they're in some moment of crisis then they can go and stay there for a few nights stabilize and then the charity maybe helps to patch things up or or, or find somewhere to move on and I know that makes a big difference um, but I know that they have far too little uh, host volunteers because it's something that, that you know there's not this the same kind of appetite to do so I think it's about us kind of trying to shake shake ourselves to think well, this isn't an issue we should take for granted, and you know we we do need a collective effort um, to, to 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 try and address it. Okay, twenty thousand people sleeping rough on the streets at any one time. There are there are there are twenty thousand towns and villages. That's essentially one ta one person per town and village. It's not a big number when you break it down. We see homeless people. What 
for everyone that's watching and listening right now, if they were to see a homeless person in a shop door at any day, time of day or night, what should they do? Walk past, ignore, stop, ask if they can buy them a cup of coffee, sit down, talk to them. What, what's, the, what's the right etiquette here? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I certainly think, um, you know, often even more valuable than giving someone some money or whatever it is a, a conversation saying hello. I think one of the big things that we always heard when we started to take people on from homeless backgrounds and they used to tell us about what it was like, you know, to, to live through that. The big thing that they kind of often said was they felt totally invisible. They felt like their kind of humanity had been taken away. You know, people just walked past and totally ignored them. Um, and it was that sense of invisibility, which was just totally kind of soul destroying for them. So I think whatever you can do to make them not feel invisible. So that can be whatever it is for you, buying them a coffee, you know, even just saying, you know, good morning or just acknowledging them, you know, is is more than what most people um, will do. So I think just about understanding that person is a human being and is somebody's son or daughter or, uh, you know, they've got their own backstory and kind of just treating them accordingly through, you know, a bit of politeness, conversation, buying them a coffee. Um, and, you know, you never know where that can go. You know, it, depending on your level of resources as well, if you're an employer, uh, if you have a business that employs people, entry-level jobs, then maybe you could consider doing what we did and, and opening those kind of jobs up. Um, you know, there's all kinds of other creative ways you might think about uh, trying to do something about it but I think as a first step just um, saying hello buying someone a coffee having a little conversation can can make more of a difference than people might realise Does does society frustrate you or are you you an optimistic kind of guy where you look for the good I mean I I think politics frustrates me um, but society doesn't and I think you know running a a charity now like you know our organization evolved from a business to a social enterprise to an umbrella kind of charity as well and anytime we've um asked for support like the sleep out was a an, an amazing example you know we're eight thousand people from all walks of life and this was people who were you know chief executives of some of the big banks or you know very successful business people or people from different religious groups or school children um, and you just see the altruism regard. I think we can very tribalistic in our society now where you kind of view people in different tribes, but to see 8,000 people from all these backgrounds lying side by side, shivering through the night to take a stand for the most vulnerable people uh, among us, just demonstrated, uh, you know, that sense of goodness and altruism in people. Um, you know, another example Back in 2014, um, before George Clooney ever visited us or anything like this, we were just a couple of years old. We had, had a few cafes and we were, as I say, running this pay it forward system. And the way it used to work is that when customers came in, they would buy an extra sandwich or whatever. We would tear off the receipt and the receipt went in this big glass jar on the counter. And um, when homeless people came in, they could have rummaged through the jar and they say, oh, there's a receipt for a sandwich. And we would throw the receipt away and they'd get the sandwich for free. So basically back in 2014, these jars kept running empty. Um, so homeless people would come in and this effectively the demand for the free food was outstripping the amount of donations we were getting from customers. We were a tiny little organization. We didn't have any resources at all. So we quite often just have to turn people away and say, maybe try one of the other cafes or 
you know, maybe try about later. And I remember it was coming up to Christmas and we were totally cash We, I was a bit worried whether we were going to be able to meet payroll towards the end of the year. And it's just one of those, you know, typical kind of small organ, you know, fledgling organization. And we were, as I say, having to turn homeless people away. But we decided that year to basically open up two of our cafes, one in Glasgow, one in Edinburgh on Christmas Day. And we thought we'd do like a Christmas dinner thing uh, for homeless people. But we thought we should at the very least try and cover our costs for doing it. So I approached a friend of mine, a guy called Ollie, who runs a website called It Is On, which is like a daily deals kind of website in Scotland, where normally he advertises maybe like a lovely hotel break or a nice dinner at a restaurant for a good value deal. And people go on and they buy deals on his website. So I asked Ollie if he would run a deal where someone could basically buy a homeless person a Christmas dinner for maybe five pounds. And he said, yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, he said, how many dinners would you like to try and sell? I said, well, I don't know. We're going to open two shops. Maybe we could sell 800 dinners at a fiver. Then we could probably cover our costs for, for doing it all. And he said, what happens if you sell more? And I said, well, to be honest, the jars are running empty. Um, so maybe we could keep them topped up for a few weeks or a month or two into the new year if we sell more. So I said, okay. So he launches this deal about two weeks before Christmas and it's buy a homeless person Christmas dinner for five five pounds. And we're sitting there watching it launch and we're hoping it's going to sell 800 and it basically ends up selling 800 Christmas dinners in about 10 minutes. Uh, and the deal ran for two weeks and ended up selling 36,000 uh, Christmas dinners for a fiver. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and that totally tra transformed the financial picture of Social Bite and it enabled us basically from that day on to never, ever turn a homeless person away again from the cafes because the jars were in effect topped up throughout the year. So I could sit and tell you 100 stories of where we've kind of tilted the door open a little bit for people to demonstrate that compassion and altruism and doors just been blown wide open. So I've got no doubt in the good of uh, human beings, the good of people, um, you know, if it's only, it's only channeled. So yeah, for sure. So you've got five honorary doctorate doctorates, you've got various awards, you've become an MBE. I mean, the family must be proud of you, but, what are you most proud of? Um, I don't know. I think um, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a hard question, I suppose. I, like I've been doing this for ten years. Um, I, I don't know. I think like with any entrepreneur, you can get a bit obsessed with your work and what you're doing. And certainly for ten years, I've, I've had a, a large part of those ten years been very tunnel vision. I got married last October. October. I've got my first baby on the way uh, in two weeks' time. Um, so I don't know. I'm starting to just become proud of some of these other areas of you know more of a balance, focusing on uh, some of these other good things in life. You know, alongside uh, you know all of the, the social bite stuff, which has been been ten years. Um, but you know, I, I guess I'm proud. I, I, when I was a kid, you know when maybe I was a teenager, it was always, I was always very idealistic. I was quite politically charged and I always, it was always my ambition to go and make a difference in the world in some way. Um, you know, and I'm proud that I kind of managed to, to find a way to do that and kind of stick to my guns from that kind of, didn't totally lose that, that younger kind of sense of idealism that I used to have when I was a kid. So I think I'm just proud that I managed to, um, yeah, to, to kind of do what what I always kind of dreamt of doing, which was trying to make a bit of a difference some way in the world.
You struggled with that question, didn't you? Yeah, you struggled no, answering that. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It's so it's, it's almost there's so much to be proud of. Just tell me about your staff and your people. Tell me about what they're like and and the culture that you've created with the organisation. Yeah, that's a, another uh, great question. I think I'm super super blessed with the team that we have, and I think that's one of the special things about social bite. And I'd imagine a lot of kind of really cause driven organizations is it attracts really passionate people you know and people that kind of treat it like I do you know you can really get the sense that they don't treat it as a job you know they treat it as a real vocation and they're just equally passionate about that you know the work that we're doing and they kind of many of them eat sleep and breathe it and that's just amazing to see people kind of carry the torch for what was my vision and become more of a shared vision um you know so I think that's another thing you kind of learn uh, as you mature a bit in business and, and entrepreneurship is it's quite a solo mission in the early stages. Um, but, you know, as the organization evolves, you realize, uh, you, you know, your primary role really is to recruit well and to cultivate a good culture and a, a motivated team. And that's ultimately what's going to propel the organization forward. And And I think, you know, we've been really, really blessed with the people that have come to work work with us and we've got a really long-standing team as well I think you know many have been with us for many many years and um it's nice to work with people that you trust and um you know we've been been with you a long time so yeah I definitely think that's a a core reason why we've been able to achieve a lot of things we have is the the team around me and lastly tell me what's 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 coming up over the course of the next 24 months What, what what are the ambitions the goals where are you heading and uh and how can we be involved yeah, I mean, I think the big the big thing is we're looking to replicate our social bite village uh, projects. We're looking to do two more villages, uh, one in Glasgow and one in Dundee. Um, so we've identified some land, uh, one in the outskirts of Glasgow and another one in Dundee. Um, so I'm excited about that. It's a really exciting project because it's so tangible, literally building houses for people to, cut, to come and live in. Um, you know, so that's going to be a big effort probably over the next 24 months. Um, and you know, in terms of how you guys can be involved, love, love to to stay in touch. I'm not sure, like you know, what the homeless issue is like in Dubai in the Middle East. Um, but you know, it's always great to to make connections with uh, you know like-minded people and to see how we might collaborate to to, to make a difference. And you know, take we you know, for example, we just opened one of our cafes in London, so we've got certain models that can be. Uh, replicate in other cities of cafes and obvious ones so there's all, always kind of opportunities for collaboration where it might emerge um so yeah how much does one of those those villages cost it's about one and a half million pounds we budget um for, for, for it um each house is about 65 grand to build so the, my audience listening there's people from different walks of life here then if they want to get involved can they you know whenever i'm involved with, with with charity and cause i find it very personally and not for anyone watching right now don't take what i do as the, the right or wrong way but i find just giving money for me isn't enough mm-hmm. um we did we, we were in rwanda recently and we built a playground in rwanda and there's a fantastic guy over there that we that we work with, uh, an Iranian guy that when he was a kid, he was in the war. And so the only thing that kept him away from the fear of the war was playing. And mm-hmm. so he went on a, a, on, a, on, a, on a journey through his life and he decided that he wanted 
children in these war-torn areas to learn how to play again and so he's a builder and he decided to start building playgrounds for people and he's magical he's wonderful mm. he's an incredible guy <laughs> he's 35 playgrounds have been built now wow. but we, we went to build a playground and each playground cost about fifteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars and we, we went down there and for me giving money didn't give I suppose it doesn't give me anything. That's probably mm-hmm. the, the the reason it doesn't. I need to go down there and I'm rubbish with my hands. I can't even mm-hmm. put a screw in a ball, but I needed to be drilling and I needed to be welding and I needed to be mm-hmm. sweeping up and I need to be painting. Yeah. I just needed to feel like I was involved. And be, I come back from a trip like that and it's like I've done something worthy. Mm-hmm. With with the stuff that you do, can people be involved as well as just give money? Can people get involved in, you know, if that thing has to be built, getting involved in putting it together as well, clearing the land and stuff? Is that allowed? Yeah, of course. You know, we have lots of volunteering opportunities, um, you know, for, for the villages. There'll be tons of stuff with that. In all of the cafes, there's opportunity for people to come to the free food services and help give out food and have chats with people. Um, yeah, and, you know, across most areas or areas of our work, there's opportunities for people to come and get stuck in. Um, as well as to donate. So yeah, any listeners that's uh, you know in the UK or his family in the UK, you know, I'd love to to get them involved. Um, and yeah, you know, always open to to areas where there's collaboration to to try and bring some of these other things to life in different places as well, for sure. You're one of life's very special people, Josh. And I, I think maybe you have been told this before, but I want to reiterate that what you do is incredible. And I respect you enormously for a commitment of over a decade to make the difference that you've made. It really is incredible to see. And my hat is sincerely taken off to you, sir. What a great job you've done. Thank you so much, Spencer. And likewise, and I really appreciate you inviting me on as well. Thank you. Great. Thanks for coming on the show. And ladies and gentlemen, if you are interested in following Josh and the work that he's doing, please go and check them out. The links will be attached to this content. So go follow, go and go and ask him a question for goodness sake. Tell him you listen to him on the show. Say, what can I do to help? Or you inspired me. I'm sure any feedback or any engagement, I'm sure he'd be very, very happy with. Would that be fair, Josh? Absolutely. Thanks very much for joining us on the show, folks. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.